the second thought then that just kept going on repeat in my mind was like, my life is never going to be the same again. I have no idea what is going to happen from this moment on, but whatever it is, it's all different now. It will never go back to the way it used to be. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Elizabeth Edwards. Resilience is accepting your new reality, even if it's less good than the one you had before. My guest today, Jessica Buchanan, has one of the most astounding stories of resilience I've ever heard. She's a teacher, author, humanitarian, speaker, and survivor who was held in captivity for 93 days by Somali pirates. Jessica shared her astonishing story in a New York Times bestselling book, Impossible Odds, and was the subject of one of the most widely viewed 60-minute segments of all time. She's also delivered a TEDx talk, Change is Your Proof of Life. Jessica, thanks for joining us on the Elevate podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So I heard you speak a few months back, and I was just captivated by your story and knew my listeners would be as well. Unfortunately, I think COVID got in the way mm. uh, between now and then, <laughs> but you know, that should be, you know, COVID, no, no problem for you. We survived. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, humanitarian work is obviously a, a centerpiece of your story. How did you first cultivate your passion for humanitarian work, especially internationally? Hmm. Um, that's a really good question and something I get asked a lot. I mean, I grew up in the middle of a cornfield in Ohio. And so people often wonder, like, how did you end up like going from a cornfield in Ohio to the Horn of Africa running around Somalia? Um, I, you know, I grew up, I grew up in the church, you know, um, community and service were big values that were instilled in me from the very, very beginning my parents worked really hard um, at home and, and in their community and in service. And so there was a lot of, I think, just this mindset and this attitude um, that we have everything we need. And so to whom much is given, much is required. And there's there are a whole lot of people out there in the world who could use some help. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's partly my upbringing, partly my personality. I'm just always going to be a teacher. Ended up through a series of events. You know, I always like to say I took the scenic route. Um, went to college a couple of times, dropped out because I couldn't figure out exactly what I wanted to do and ended up getting a degree in education. And my first summer break, I, by some stroke of luck, ended up teaching in Honduras for the summer. And I, it was just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I get to hang out with all these amazing people and these kids and travel. And, and so, um, and really feel like I'm doing something that maybe helps in some way. And so it just kind of um, snowballed. And so when I finished up my degree, I ended up with a student teaching position in Nairobi, Kenya, um, and then started teaching in an international school, which was awesome. And I loved it. Met my husband um, in Nairobi, who was doing humanitarian work. He's from Sweden and, and we got married and he was uh, being stationed in um, Somalia. So where'd you get married? We got married in Mombasa on the Kenyan coast. Oh, really? You got married in Africa? Oh. Yeah, we did. It was amazing. So wait, did you met there? You got married there oh, and, you yeah. ne- and you never left? 
No, uh-uh. we met actually like almost 15 years ago to the day. I was just out with some friends and in a nightclub and there was this cute guy and we've been talking ever since. Um, it's interesting because when you meet somebody in that context, my dad always said to me, you know, just go out and just live your life and do what you love. And, um, you know, I was single at the time and I was lamenting, like I couldn't meet anybody, I couldn't find anybody. And he was like, just go do what you love because, you know, you're going to find somebody out there doing the same thing. And then that's when you'll know it'll work. And and that's been really true with Eric. That was pretty prescient. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really, really true. Like, yeah. don't go out looking for somebody who's out in places and doing things that you're not interested in. That doesn't make yeah. any sense. Right. You guys are both following similar passion. Yeah. And you really have to be, I think, of that mindset if you're going to make it in that environment because it's hard. Yeah. You know, it's fun. It's really interesting. Um, the work is incredible, but it's really hard and heartbreaking and just physically uncomfortable at times, you know? And so you really have to both be committed to it and in which we were. So, yeah. um, I quit my teaching job, moved to Hargisa, Somaliland with him where he was based. Um, and again, like being a teacher is the best profession in this kind of like teacher or probably a healthcare professional. And um, because everybody always wants to learn English or learn something. So, um, you know, I just found work and consultancies. And before I knew it, I had a job with the Danish demining group, which was the uh, mine action unit of the Danish refugee council, a really big international non-governmental organization uh, that worked in armed violence reduction and community safety. And they also did mine clearance um, in countries where, you know, they're still recovering from civil war, even like 20 plus years out. And there are often explosives, landmines, unexploded ordinances, um, littering communities because of conflict. No one's been yeah. able to go in and help clear those things out. And, uh, you know, you've got newer generations and kids who don't know what these things are. They think they're worth money. They bring them home, they stockpile them, or they oh. step on them or, you know, so it's a real security concern. And so the organization that I was working for, they brought me in. And to uh, help create curriculum for the Ministry of Education around these um, these messages about staying safe. So you were not, not you were not retrieving them. You were educating the community yeah. and the children on how to avoid them, recognize them. Yeah, yeah. Okay. our organization did re- do retrieval. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm I'm an educator. Yeah. So- <laughs> Really what I came in to do, uh, and, you know, I got to do some cool things like, you know, go to some site blasts and stuff like that. But that was for me to understand how to message things so that people understood what we were trying to say. Because, you know, oftentimes going into communities with zero, very little literacy skills. um, And I, I think I was like one of the first people to come in there and be like, hey, you were writing even Somali on a flip chart is not getting the message across because, you know, these people are nomadic. They're camel herders. They don't read if this is an oral culture. So how about we draw some pictures? And it was super cool because then I was able to find source local artists and we created these amazing posters and workbooks and puzzles for kids. And, you know, because my specialty is with children, um, it was I really, I just, you know, I'm super creative and I felt like I was just like in the zone, right? Like just living my best life. And Eric was doing his thing, working for his organization. His background is in governance and um, uh, stability. And so, yeah, it was great. 
until it wasn't. So you were asked to go on a training program, right? That's where yeah. uh, this was yeah. 2011, right? 2011. So I became the regional education advisor for DDG, which meant I covered programs in South Sudan, Northern Uganda, like way, way far up north, um, Kenya, Somaliland, where I was based, and then Somalia. Yeah, not Mogadishu, but we had some programs in Galkayo, which was further north. And I had been to all of all of my places of responsibility except for Galkayo because it was just not, it was like a hot spot for sure. And I didn't feel good about it. And my colleague, Paul, who is a Danish gentleman, was basically managing the program down there. And he and I were friends because he had worked in, and lived in Hargisa for a long time. So I knew him really well. And he, he wanted me to come down and do this training. And it was my responsibility. It was part of my job description. Um, but I just I didn't feel good about it. I canceled it twice. On the third schedule, like right before the third trip, I called him and I said, you know, I just don't feel good about this. I have money in my budget. Like, why don't I bring your staff up to Hargisa and, you know, we'll make it a big thing. And he was just like, no, no, no. And we need to stand in solidarity. You need to come down here. This is your job. And if you, you know, basically like. He sort of threatened your job. Yeah. I mean, he didn't like come out and say it, but he was very, very thoroughly implying, if you don't get down here and do your job, I'm going to like report you, you know, and, and I'm going to have a talk with our supervisor. And, you know, I'm also, this is like a conversation around women working, especially in environments like this. And yes, it's been 10 years, over 10 yeah. years, but I don't think things have changed much, unfortunately. Uh, it's very do- male dominated work environments. There was a power dynamic, it sounds like. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I worked really, really hard to get to that point. And I, you know, I did a really good job, but constantly putting up with you know, misogynistic comments. You know, I had a supervisor call me stupid once when we were in the field, you know, so I, I was feeling like. You didn't have you a know, choice. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like up against a wall really. And so, you know, then that's when you go into, or at least for me, I was like, well, what, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? Like, it's going to be fine. It's always fine. We have security protocols. I followed all of the necessary procedures. I got clearance to go from the security advisor that was based in Nairobi. So, you know, my husband didn't feel great about it either, but it was like, well, you know, this is my job. So I guess I better do it. So I got on a plane, uh, flew down to Galkayo. The training was three days long. Uh, so not to get too in the weeds, but you kind of have to understand this to, to understand the, the context of the training. Galkayo at the time was divided by this green line is what they called it. There's a lot of conflict in the region because it was basically, I want to use the word ruled, but I don't feel like that's the right word, but you get yeah. my drift. And um, by two opposing clans that were always clashing over resources and water and, and stuff like that. And so you had the, a clan that was governing the north side of Galkayo and then a clan that was governing the south side. And so we had two separate offices. We had to have one in the north and one in the south in order to work there. We had to have a staff in the north office that were from that particular clan and and so on from the south. We even had to have vehicles that were registered in the north and separate vehicles registered in the south. 
And we had to get out at the green line and cross over by foot and get in a separate convoy of vehicles so we could get to the South office. And that was the part that I was really worried about because usually if something's going to happen, it's going to happen while you're in transit, right? Like while you're on the move, that's when you're most vulnerable. So we had two days of training in the North office, which is also where I was staying. And so, you know, that was easy. Just go down, do the, the training. It went great. Um, so I had like this October 25th, like my last day, I have to get across the green line, get to the South office, do the training, get back. And then I'm going to leave the next morning. So like, we're almost there. Um, and I, all night long, I didn't sleep. I had these nightmares, like literally all night long. And I'm not like a prolific dreamer yeah. like that. Like, that's just not how my mind Something works. wasn't right. Yeah. Yeah. It, but something wasn't right. And it was very specific. Um, it was that pirates had overtaken the compound and they were like trying to get into my room. And basically I was being kidnapped. And I remember getting up in the morning, like drenched in sweat. It's hot. Go into the bathroom. I look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, God, just, you know, you want to do this? And I mean, like literally my intuition was like sending flares, all like doing cartwheels, like, don't do this. Don't leave. Don't go. And then again, it was like, well, you know, everything's been arranged. You're, you're already here. Like, what are you going to do? Go down there and tell Paul, sorry, I'm not going to go. Cause I had these nightmares all night long and I'm freaked out. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. Right. So once again, I ignored my intuition and, um, I got in a co- the convoy of vehicles. We did our thing. We got there, uh, did the training. It went fine. And around three o'clock in the afternoon, we were getting ready to head back to, uh, the north side. Did you feel relief after you did the training? Like when you were headed back? Oh my back? God. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah. just like, you know, whew, okay. We made it through that. Yeah. Like just, you know, it was like just one, one milestone after the other, like, let's just get across the green line to the South office. Okay. We did that. Let's get through the train. Okay. Let's get through lunch. Okay. We did that. Like, but so I, I was like, by the time we got into the vehicles and we were headed back North, I was like, okay, I'm going to make it. Like, this is going to be great. Um, but we didn't make it. Instead, about 10 minutes into the the drive, and um, a car comes up around the right side, not a land cruiser. We're all in these big, huge, like diesel land cruisers. And um, I'm in the middle vehicle. We're in a convoy because we had to travel with armed guards. And, we, and you had a security detail. Yeah, we had yeah, exactly. We had a detail. We had armed guards in the front, armed guards in the back vehicle. Paul and I were in the middle. We had a driver and then our... Uh, National security advisor, a man named Abdi Rizak, was in the back seat with me. And um, another Land Cruiser comes, like, cuts us off um, so that we can't keep moving. And mud splashed up all over the windows and the windshield because it had been, it was a rainy season and I couldn't see out the windows anymore. And I, you know, I'm just like, had been on my phone or whatever. And then thinking, like, good grief, what a jerk who drives like that, you know? And, and, but, Sometimes there could be crazy drivers, so it wasn't anything too ordinary. But then I started hearing shouting and screaming and then banging, like something hard was hitting the car. And I realized um, it was the butt of an AK-47. And it wasn't too unlikely, you know, everybody had... Everyone has guns, yeah. Yeah, everybody has guns. But um, then someone pulls open Abdurizak's door, and it's a man dressed in a police uniform. They're called SPU, I think Special Police Unit is what they stood for. Um, and he's armed and he's angry and he pulls Abdi Rizak straight out of the car out. Like he had a seatbelt on, he just ripped him out of the seatbelt. 
remember him like hitting him in the head with his gun. And then he got in next to me and he put, you know, the barrel of the gun up to my head and started screaming at the driver to drive. And so we just take off. Like the driver doesn't even hesitate. He doesn't say anything. He just like tears off through town. So he knew where he was going. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I, I couldn't put that together. I was like, I mean, I couldn't put anything together at the time. I was yeah. just, I had two like very, I think very basic <laughs> fundamental thoughts um, that were on repeat in my mind. And the first one was just like, this is, this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. This is so bad. This is so bad. Like, this is so bad that I have no frame of reference for what this even is. Right. Like, I don't know. I I'm like searching the recesses of my mind for some training. Like, have I read some book somewhere that's going to help give me context? Like I have no idea what is happening here. So who's in the car, you Paul and this other gentleman and the driver. Yeah. And then the driver. And then it's, I guess at some point during the actual like overtaking of the vehicle, you know, and who knows how weird he really was. But my memory is that there was this very strange little man in the back of the Land Cruiser. And I remember, you know, because we were in this car for hours, like maybe eight hours or something. And it it was before it got dark. because I remember turning around and looking at him and he was high, you know, they chewed caught this like green leaf that is like just everybody chews it in the horn of africa and it's um like an amphetamine so it's That's it's like good. speed yeah no and um everybody chews it and he was super high and i just remember him my all my stuff was in the back like my work bag and my wallet and he went through all my personal belongings like my wallet and he took everything out like piece by piece like my passport and he just kept throwing it behind him money threw it behind him and he was like like laughing like it was so bizarre and at this point i'm still just like okay we must be like just being carjacked right like surely they're just gonna take our stuff they want our sat phones i'm taking all my jewelry off like here's my money like take it all and i'm we like we just keep driving and i don't know how long into the whole thing paul turns around to look at me and i just say i look kind of mouth to him like what is happening and he, I, I will never forget. It was just like this look of sincere, like pity because I hadn't put it all together yet. And he just said, we're being kidnapped. And then uh, the second thought then that just kept going on repeat in my mind was like, my life is never going to be the same again. I have no idea what is going to happen from this moment on, but whatever it is, it's all different now it will never go back to the way it used to be. And that's been true. And, and did you have in that moment, where is there any, I knew it, (laughs) I should have listened to myself. Was there, or is there not even time to process that? No, I didn't, you know, I didn't process that. And I can get to that story in a little while. I repressed that for like two months. Hmm. I didn't remember any of that for a very long time. So that's, that's an interesting story, uh, but we're, we're, we're not there yet, but so you um, drive into the dark in the middle of nowhere, you know, and we stop, we stop a lot. And then, then more people are getting in the vehicle and then we stop and we're forced out to get into another vehicle. And um, we don't know where we're going. I mean, it's the desert, 
you know, we're driving on camel tracks at some points we're driving so fast that I'm afraid the car is going to flip because we're up on two wheels. And I think, well, we're going to just die in a car accident because I mean, we are in the middle of nowhere. And, um, I would say maybe like, you know, three in the morning. So maybe we've been in transit for 12 hours. We stop just in the middle of some dirt road and uh, there are vehicles everywhere and there are men everywhere. They're heavily armed. Like, and by arms, I'm saying AK-47s and also these kind of old fashioned machine guns. And they carry, I mean, they were taller than me and militia style, right? Like, so just belts of ammo and I'm ordered out of the vehicle and told to walk out into the desert. And I'm thinking, (laughs) uh, well, whatever is waiting for me out there is not going to be good. So I think I'm going to stay here like for as long as I can. So I just say no. And I have an exchange with one of the kidnappers and we go back and forth like this a little bit and he starts to get really agitated. And then Paul comes over and he says, Jess, you know, we need to walk. Like we've got to walk. We have to listen to what they're saying we have to do. Um, so we do, and I don't know how long we walk, but it was the most terrifying span of time in my life because, um, I, you know, I'm saying my goodbyes, like I'm not, I'm not crying, like, you know, sobbing, screaming. I'm not saying anything. I, I remember just silently weeping and then thinking like, I don't, I just don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand how this happened. I don't understand what I did to end up here. Like I'm, you know, I'm thinking things like I'm 30, I'm 32 years old at the time. Like I didn't have any kids. God, I wish I'd gotten around to that, you know, saying goodbye to my husband and my dad. My mom had actually just passed away the year before. And I was still really in the middle of like grieving. Uh, yeah. And so she became such a touchstone for me starting then, but throughout the whole ordeal. And you know, I just called out to her, like, please like help me. For some reason, it felt like really important to be dignified, as dignified as I, I could be and brave. And I can imagine, I have to think that like every single person thinks about what their final moments are going to be like at some point, right? You know, we're, we wonder like, is it going to hurt? Like, are yeah. we going to be sick? Like, is it going to happen suddenly? Like, what are we going to be thinking about? Who's going to be with us? And my understanding from people that have gone through that is you have real clarity around what matters, right? All of a sudden. Yeah. 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 That whole life flashing before your eyes yeah. thing, right? It's really, it is, it's really true. Like, what are the things that matter? Well, it's, it's Eric and it's, it's my dad and my brother and my sister and, you know, suddenly I felt closer to my mom than I had since she had died because I felt like she was right there. I could feel her, you know, and we just kept walking and then were ordered to abruptly stop and, and to get to on our knees, uh, like execution style. And I thought, okay, well, this is, this is it. Like, how bad is this going to hurt is what I kept thinking. Cause I wasn't sure if like, they were going to cut my head off, if they were going to shoot me, like, what does that feel like? You know? And then just out of like the blue or really the black out of the darkness is so dark. 
one of them just says sleep lay down in the dirt and go to sleep that's not what you're expecting no yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then you're just like like i just collapsed yeah the letdown must have been the adrenaline yeah release must oh have been God. like yeah. yeah it knocked me out like yeah. i passed out i literally passed oh. out yeah um and then i woke up a few hours later and hoping it was a dream i'm guessing no yeah, no. It, <laughs> yeah. And it was hell i woke up in the middle of hell where i would be for 93 days have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game two years ago i bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that i had never been willing to try before when we own exceptional things they inspire us to do exceptional things the all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free terms and conditions apply. So you wake up sun's the first sunrise. What do you see? You're just in the middle of nowhere in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by heavily armed men. I can't even count. And men and men is, is sort of a qualifier, right? I mean, these are, Mm -hmm. these are some child soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. Some very young, you know, I, Oh, as time would pass and I, I tried to befriend, you know, I've never met a kid that I couldn't like figure out how to connect with, but this kid was just next level traumatized, right? Like trauma coming from a a culture of trauma, Abdullahi, he was uh, like around my son's age now. So like nine, 10 years old. um, He probably always saw was violence, right? He'd already, I mean, the, the rumor was that he'd already killed three people and he, you know, he was like, he was traumatized. So he, he didn't under, and he was a kid. So he didn't understand like terrorizing me and putting a knife to my neck could actually kill me and then jeopardize this whole ordeal for everybody. You know, then there's not going to be much of a payout if the hostage gets killed by a nine-year-old. So that was a dynamic that I didn't see coming. That was particularly interesting and difficult to navigate. So clearly 
they didn't kill you the first night. Mm -hmm. So then do you try to communicate and say, what do you want? Why am I here? Like, yeah. Sure. It was a lot of just sitting around and waiting for the first couple of weeks, really not getting any information. No one spoke English. There was one guy that we figured out must have been in some sort of leadership role. He called them a militia. He said his name was Abdi. I think probably like the third or fourth day, we finally were able to have some like contact with him. He came over to us. And I remember like the first question we asked was, are you going to kill us? And he said, no, no, no. I just want, we just want money. We just want money. Um, so that was a relief, but there was always this threat. Like they were constantly threatening us. They'd come over, you know, like, um, negotiations aren't going well. And I, I am paraphrasing because it was a lot of just pointing and screaming and I didn't understand words, even though I had like a, like maybe a, I can't even say a working knowledge of Somali is very difficult language, but you know, I knew some greetings and I knew a few words to contextualize and stuff, but it was just like a lot of like, they would just get in my face and scream, you know, the F word constantly. Cause that was like one English word they knew. Um, but things weren't moving in the right direction. They started the, the uh, ransom demand was $45 million. They told you that someone told yeah. us finally, this guy, if you read the book, you'll meet, um, You'll meet a man named Jabril. He came on the scene a couple of weeks into the whole thing. He did speak pretty good English. He had, he said he ran an NGO um, in Mogadishu. He was crazy. So if they're asking for 45 million, so we'll talk about sort of mental survival. Did mm-hmm. you feel like, well, someone must know I'm here then? You know, I, I think the worst feeling is to not, if someone you didn't know, anyone knew whether you were dead or alive or. Yeah. 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 And, and we kept, you know, asking like, can we call our organization? Can we call our families? And they kept saying, well, we're waiting for um, the translator. And we thought they meant like the negotiator and they had just gotten the word wrong. Yeah. But ironically. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Jabril comes on the scene and he really truly did represent himself as a translator. And, um, you know, we come to find out at the end of the the day, he was behind the whole thing. Um, But he's presented himself as just a translator who had, you know, a Somali man who knew some English and he would um, be a part of the calls when, you know, the first proof of life call that we were able to make would have been about two weeks into the whole thing. Was it a recording or was it an actual call? It was a call. They drove oh. us out into, like, you know, we were out in the desert and then they would drive us further into the desert several oh. hours. And um, because, you know, <laughs> at the time I thought that they were being super paranoid because yeah. they were like, well, I don't know, like people are watching. And the American government, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, oh my God, you're so stupid. Yeah. Um, turns out they weren't. They were actually right. Um, but uh, they just dialed some number and put us on the phone. And, and I was really surprised that it was someone I didn't know. It was a representative from my organization and no one that I knew. He asked me a series of um, security questions to make sure it was me. And, you know, I was able to like give a message to my family. I talked to my husband. There were six proof of life calls through the entire ordeal. One, only one call. I was able to have a like a two-minute conversation with my husband. It was actually on Thanksgiving Day. I didn't know it was Thanksgiving because I'd lost track. And they, you know, they were so suspicious of the other person on on the other end of the phone. And it's hard to 
explain, but he was Somali as well. And that was some tactic that the organization used that didn't really go over well. And, you know, a lot of the things that I know now are, you know, on my husband's side and my family side. I mean, the FBI got involved as soon as they found out an American had been taken hostage. Um, and so Matt Espenshade was the uh, FBI like attache that was based in Nairobi and he was on it. I mean, if it were not for Matt and his dedication and his hard work, I don't think I would be here. I mean, he just worked nonstop and, you know, was able to like, my organization was, I think a bit difficult to work with. They were a little bit suspicious of the, the U S government and, and wanted to kind of do things their way. Who, they did have, who did they believe was going to pay the 45 million? Was it your NGO? Well, you know, no one ever really wants to pay a ransom. Yeah. Right. And so the organization did have KNR insurance, thank God. And for some reason I knew that, I don't know how I knew that. And that's not widely spread information. And um, because it just makes you more vulnerable, right? Um, but I, uh, they had KNR insurance, which meant that they, uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe a cup a week into the whole thing, they brought in um, two professional hostage negotiators who worked 24 hours on and 24 hours off, you know, communicating with whoever, whenever the calls would come in. Because um, I think there were a lot of calls coming in that I wasn't involved in or part of. Right. And you're, and you're finding this out afterwards. But so mm-hmm. you're just, you're outlying in the sun. Is there any shade? Like, what do you, what do you do all day? What do you and Paul do to like get, I mean, it must be like the clock doesn't, doesn't even move. I mean, and do they treat you mm. well? Do they feed you regularly or what, mm. what were the, I mean, the conditions were obviously not great, but what was day to day life like? It was outside and um, we were not taken to a house. We were not taken to a shelter and um, we basically roamed around like a 50 mile radius. I think that they had to have clan collaboration and permission to be in certain areas. And when time was up, we had to move and we were camping, but there was no tent. So I slept on a mat out in the middle of the field or something in every night. And then I would sit under trees or lay under bushes if there were no trees. Yeah. I was going to say, even getting sunburn, like yeah, the, yeah. super sunburn, even yeah. sitting under acacia trees, there's not a lot yeah. of foliage. It's just like thorns. And it's hot, man. It's hot during the day. So you're dehydrated. You know, we would have some bottled water. Uh, A lot of times there wasn't. And a lot of times there wasn't food. And basically we existed on small, like miniature cans of tuna fish. And I'm sure you've um, never eaten tuna again. I I can eat it in different forms, (laughs) but I can't eat it straight out (laughs) of the can. can. I I think the first time they gave it to me, I was like, how am I supposed to eat this? And I had a little bag, like a little purse that they let me keep. And I I felt like, like the female version of MacGyver. Cause I was like going through my little bag and I'm like, what in here can I use to eat this tuna fish? Because it's really hard to eat with your fingers. Yeah. So I like used a tampon applicator. I was like, okay, like I can scoop this up. So that became like my, you know, my utensil. And finally somebody brought me a fork at one point. So my fork doubled as a eating utensil, but I also combed my hair with it because I didn't have any way to like for the first month, my hair was sticking up like a hedgehog because I had no way to. Like, you, ever, you never saw yourself, did you? Uh-uh. No. You at one point, somebody brought me, I, I do remember looking at myself in the rear view mirror. Once we, we got into a vehicle at one point and I was shocked. I was like, cause you know, I just dropped weight yeah. so fast. 
I'm almost six feet tall. I think it was 119 pounds when I came out. And, and so how do you like, did you meditate? Like, how do you stop your mm. mind from just racing all day long with anxious and negative thoughts? Well, it takes a while. Yeah. I would say the first month I spent panicking, you know, just trying not to have panic attacks all day long. Um, and we are incredibly adaptable as human beings. I don't think that's anything like special about me. I just think that that's how we are built. And I noticed that as time went on and things, you know, didn't pick up and it just was slow because it was 12 hours of trying to keep myself from going insane to, you know, things slowed down. My brain slowed down. My thinking slowed down my breathing slowed down and I'm a pretty introspective person by nature. And I started really like looking for, looking for anything to keep my mind occupied. But, um, I think probably like 40 or so days in, I woke up one morning and I think they had brought me a cup of tea or something. So I had some tea and then I moved my mat out from the field and put it under a tree And I was really into yoga at the time, still am, but really, really into yoga at the time. And and so I would do like a morning practice of yoga and, and I sat back down under this tree and I had this very clarifying aha moment. You know, I had been thinking about taking a sabbatical from work when I actually was going to come back from this trip. And I, you know, I was just like really hurting uh, after losing my mom and I thought, I wanted to like go deal with that and go find myself. And I figured I'd go sit in an ashram in India for a couple of months or something and and try to work some stuff out. And I was sitting under this tree cross-legged and all of a sudden it just like hit me this realization of, well, didn't the Buddha receive enlightenment while he was sitting under a tree? And, you know, and I grew up in the Christian um, tradition. So then I thought about Jesus and how he wandered for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert to get his... (laughs) revelation. Um, and then I thought about all the stories of saints and, and, um, religious and spiritual teachers who put themselves in situations where they were depriving themselves so that they could get to their, they could move away all of the extra and all of the outside noise and, and and the things of this world so that they could go inward and connect with the um, universe inside themselves. And I looked around and I was like, well, shoot, you know, maybe this is my opportunity. Maybe, you know, I don't think that, that this is why this happened because we certainly could have had a more enjoyable experience, but you know, I'm not one to like waste an opportunity or time. So like, let's see what we can find out here. So I, I also like to be kind of organized. So I made a work plan for myself, like in my head again, I didn't have any paper or pen or books. I didn't have anything just had my mind. And, um, I decided to take my life apart in increments and I was going to spend like an entire day thinking about everything I could think about when I, that happened to me when I was four years old and Mm. every day I was going to take another year. And so, you know, like memories of, um, really beautiful moments in my life and really, really hard moments, especially with my mom and my relationship with her and, you know, other parts of my life that maybe I hadn't ever taken time to grieve. 
I sat there and I sat in it and yeah. I let it move through me. And, and I like, again, I'm like literally all alone. I am not talking to anybody for days upon weeks. Well, Paul's there. So did you and Paul talk? I mean, Paul got you into this, right? Yeah. So, I right. mean, we did talk and <laughs> we were separated a lot, okay. not by our choice, but just as punishment. You know, maybe I would see him on the other side of the camp or something, but we weren't allowed to like look at each other. A lot of times they would just take him or me and put us in different camps. So we were all alone. Um, and then sometimes we were able to be together and that was good. Yes. Day 27. Paul did reveal to me that he did know that there was a direct kidnapping threat on the organization that he had neglected to tell me about and um, because he didn't want me to cancel that training. Um, so I felt like that was really. Um, so you're trying super, to, you're, you're, you're trying to go Zen and get deep while you're yeah. learning that, you yeah. know, you've basically been betrayed and you're better yeah. things. And yeah. Yeah. The, but we'd been set up and well, and I think that that, right. Like that's full circle. Like what happened to get me into this whole mess in the first place? Yes. He played a part. Absolutely. But ultimately I knew, I knew something was going to happen and I did not have the trust in myself to listen yeah. to what I knew to be true. And so I needed to repair that. And I think that that's what that time was about. Also, it was a surrender of like, you know what, if I don't get any more days, like if this is it, well, what a gift it is to be able to sit and, and review your life and have that yeah. time and, and realize, oh my God, if I don't get any more time, this has been what an incredible experience I've had. And so when I finished, like I couldn't connect anymore. This is your life was over. Yeah. Like, the, yeah, that's over, you know, 32 years. I mean, it does go fast. Yeah. Um, and then I started making plans. Of, okay. Well, what am I going to do if I do get out of here? Was it if I get out of here or when I get out of here? I think it was always when. Yeah. I don't think that there was ever, I, I just wouldn't let myself go there. Was that a rule? Did you have any other sort of mental rules? Like, yeah. For sure. I mean, when Paul and I, we had this very bizarre experience a couple of months in where they took us out deeper into the desert and made us um, record a proof of life video, which you can Google. It's on YouTube. And I think after that, we were like, man, we are in this for the long haul. Like this is not going to be resolved quickly. We did make two, we made a pact. And we had two rules. And one was that we weren't, neither one of us were going to try to escape. We weren't going to leave the other one behind. And um, because we knew the, like the ramifications of the, other, yeah. like the person left behind would be too great. And then the second thing we promised each other was uh, that we could feel anything, any emotion whatsoever, joy, anger, resentment, any of it, but the no-go zone was despair. We just knew that like getting to that point, it was going to be too hard to pull ourselves back out of that. And so it just was off the table. And I think it's interesting to learn the boundaries and also the power that you can have over your mind when you just take something off the table, like, nope, I'm just not going there. Like, yeah. we're not doing that. And you actually don't have to. I think we often go through our lives thinking we're powerless 
And, and, and that is kind of like what I talk about now is like a lot of times we don't get to make decisions about the things that happen to us, you know, and bad things happen to us. Yeah, what, what you control and what you don't control. Like this yeah. is the ultimate example, right? Yeah. But you can control how you react to it and how you let it affect you. Yeah. And look to people who are listening, or I know hear that a lot and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. this is a pretty good example of, of circumstances that are beyond the circumstances that most people would ever even dream of, uh, of not being able to control. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. So walk forward, I think it was day 80 something, you start getting pretty sick, right? Yeah, I think it was probably even before then, but I had gotten, I knew I had a, a urinary tract infection. Just, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what's the longest you've ever gone without a shower. I mean, like yeah. 80 some days is a really long time without bathing. And it was going into a kidney infection because I needed antibiotics and I'm also, you know, dehydrated considerably. You had had this before you said you say you knew oh, what yeah. it was. Yeah. I mean, I I'm prone to those and yeah. I'd had a kidney infection before and was hospitalized for a week in Nairobi. So I, I knew what was happening. I'm like having raging fevers. Like there's major infection going on in my body. And are you trying to use that with them as a like, Hey, your assets <laughs> at, at risk or, or do or... Oh, they don't care. Cause they really just need, I mean, and again, the guys that I have access to are just guards. Like they ha- yeah. are not decision makers. That I don't know if he was like just a puppet or if he really was a decision maker, but this awful, awful guy would come out best year to the camp and he would just look at me and then get in his car and, and drive away. And they only needed me alive enough so that they could cash me in. So it did, in fact, it worked to their benefit. They thought that I was oh, sick right. because they could yeah. use it as a, a tactic. Right. And um, so my last proof of life call would that I didn't know what then, but it was just, uh, sorry, January 16th, 2012. And I relayed all my symptoms to the family communicator and they, um, in turn took those, that message to Eric who went and talked to my doctor in Nairobi. And he said, very matter of factly, she has two weeks. You have to get her out of there. She's going to die. So Eric took that message to Matt and his, um, colleagues at the FBI and he said, this is his experience was he was in the room with Matt and another FBI agent. When he said that they just looked at each other and got up and left the room. 
and he knew that something that had set the wheels in motion. He just, he didn't know what, and he didn't know when. And so, yeah, I'm like January 24th, really weak. You you had a day you didn't think you were going to make it through the day, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was getting, you know, I hadn't lost hope for sure, but my body, like my mind was strong, but my body was like not holding up. And I went to bed to bed like pulled my mat out in the middle of a field and did you have a you had a conversation with your mom though before yeah. that right yeah no well it was that night it was that night i mean yeah. and it, it it's interesting how these details line up but i swear to god and all things that are holy this is exactly how it happened i was laying there and there are two stars that would come out at the same time every night and and like big and bright and they would you know drop down into the horizon a couple of hours after it got dark. Cause you know, in Africa along the equator, it's six to six. So the sun goes down at six without any kind of deviation. And, um, so I said, you know, I would talk to her every night and I would tell her, you know, I don't know. I didn't have much to say in terms of what was going on in my day, but this time, this night I was like, I need you to go and work some magic, like go tell God, because I feel like you got a connection there. Like, I'm not going to make it out of here. If you don't do something, I need a miracle. And, um, I fell asleep and I woke up a couple hours later feeling really sick. Um, and so I said the word toilet, which is how we were always, it's like asking permission to leave our mat was the word toilet. Cause that's the only reason we could leave our mat. And there were nine guys, nine pirates, if you will, on the ground that night. And they were all passed out always every single night before at least one of them was awake to keep guard over the camp and make sure, you know, we didn't run off or make sure we weren't being re-kidnapped by another group or whatever. Um, but they were all passed out, which I thought was really weird. Um, but my need became really great. So I like had a small pen light and I kept, I like picked it up and I started flashing it so that they could see that I hadn't tried to run off go to like the nearest bush, do what I need to do, come back to my mat, roll myself back up in a blanket, lay down. And then I can hear something like out, like not too far away. And it sounds like an animal or something is coming toward the camp. Cause it's like, there's brush, like there's big grasses and thorny bushes and something's breaking. Like you can hear something breaking. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like, like not really in the mood to deal with whatever this is, right? You know, I just like need to go back to sleep because this is my only escape. It is my body needs to rest. And I get up to kind of look around. I think maybe there's these bugs in my blanket. There's nothing. I roll myself back up in my blanket. And then like 30 seconds goes by. And um, the night just like erupts into automatic gunfire. It's just like over and over and over again, just bullets flying. And I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God, thinking I, then it's all I can say over and over again is, Oh God, Oh God, Oh God, Oh God, Oh God. And I'm like, just trying to press myself down into the ground, trying to make myself as like invisible as I possibly can. Um, cause I'm really, really, I'm terrified. I'm going to get caught in the crossfire. I don't know who this is. I don't know like it, who the target is. Yeah. In my mind, I'm thinking we're probably being kidnapped by another group because that was really a threat. It could be Al-Shabaab which are like Islamic extremists. And I'm a, an American woman. If they get me, like I'm done for. Um, and I just keep thinking like, I just don't have the strength to survive another kidnapping. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like better the devil, you know, right. And um, I, I'm hearing all of my captors, they're just dropping to the ground, just like being hit with bullets. They're laying, they're moaning, they're dying. 
And then somebody grabs my, my ankles or my feet and my shoulders and they're like tugging the blanket down. And I'm, I'm trying, I put my hands up in front of me. I'm trying to, um, to, to protect myself and I, I can't see anything. It's just like these dark figures. Um, but I, I'm, I, and I'm, I'm just, I'm so scared. And, and then I hear, um, one of them starts talking to me and he has an American accent as a young man. And he, he knows my name and he says, Jessica, it's okay. We're the American military. Uh, you're safe. And we're going to take you home. And I'm like, <laughs> all of a sudden just like shock like, over my body i know i just start shaking like uncontrollably shaking and all i can say over and over again is you're american you're american you're i mean i'm just like i cannot understand i cannot even begin to put all of this together and they help me sit up and and one of them has medicine and some clean water and, and so you have the antibiotic you needed yeah antibiotics clean bottled water um, they moved me to another place of safety. Paul's there. He made it out alive. And I'm like, he leans over to me and he's like, do you know who these guys are? And I'm just like, You're like, I don't care. <laughs> I am. Um, who cares who they are? Like, they're amazing. And he's like, it's SEAL Team 6. Like, these are the guys that got Osama bin Laden. And I'm just like, oh my God, how is this my life? And um, yeah. And so we wait there for the helicopters that then take us to an airfield, but then we get on a plane that takes us to a military base in Djibouti, which is where we debrief with the FBI. And then we're taken to a military base in Italy for medical treatment. And um, I'm reunited with my husband, Eric, there about three days after. And then about a week later, I'm reunited with my dad and my sister and my brother. And, you know, then I would say, there's a honeymoon period and it's super euphoric and then the surviving survival sets in and then you have to figure out how to re rebuild your life. When did you feel safe again mm. after you got taken out originally? Well, um, probably immediately, but then a, there's a regression, right? Yeah, I think, I think what really, I felt okay until I had my son, I got pregnant right after the rescue. And how many weeks after was it? <laughs> two weeks after the rescue, I think I right. got pregnant. I found out like a month later. Yeah. So you took those regrets. You took those regrets yeah. that you were walking with. Seriously. Yes, I did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, it was not planned, but you know, God had other plans. And, yeah. and so suddenly here I am like recovering. I have PTSD, like the whole thing. And now I'm like pregnant and sick all the time. And it was a, it was a lot. It was a lot to, to go through. Um, and I had my son, August, he's almost 10 and he, he was born October 2nd. And um, in Nairobi, we went back to Nairobi because that felt like home and I delivered him there and we stayed for about seven months. And mm. I just couldn't, I didn't feel safe having a, this little baby to protect and to keep alive. And I just like, I started, I had really bad postpartum anxiety and I, I started feeling really paranoid that they were after me again, yeah. you know, that they could get to me. I can't and, imagine you know, the, night, the nightmares. Like, yeah, every time it, it was awful. Yeah. So we left. And, and that was one of my greatest heartbreaks was leaving Africa because um, that was had never been our plan. But we did. We left and we came. We relocated to the U.S. Uh, outside of Washington, D.C., which is where we've been for the last nine years. And it has been um, the second part of my my journey 
you know, this is my life's journey. Like this is never, like, I'm never going to be like over this or through this. It is what I will carry with me for the rest of my life. But for me, what has been really healing and really purposeful is what I, I say, like mining the message out of it all. And like I said, you know, I'm a pretty introspective person. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about like, why did this happen? And why did this happen to me? And not in terms of like, oh, I'm so unlucky or I'm such a victim, but like, what can I do with this? And how can I use this? And I'm going to have to rebuild and reinvent my life. But like, what am I going to do now? Now that I I have literally have like more than a second chance because I could have died every single day for 93 days. I'm so incredibly fortunate and lucky to be here and to be alive and to get to tell this story and to get to be a mom and, and to then turn this into something that I do now for a living that I talk about and, and to use the lessons that I've learned to help empower other women, which is really why I think I survived, like why I'm here. So it's been well, and the reason I love to do things like this, like podcast interviews and stuff is because it like brings it all, you can get caught up in all of the day to day, but then can have this, tell this yeah, story again. Yeah. And I still like am overcome with emotion because I, just, I can see it as I, yeah, yeah. As you, yeah. I can I'm see a couple so times grateful. you closed your eyes and you were just like right there, like telling yeah. the story. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people pain is a source of purpose. I think mm. most people don't draw the connection. I think for you, because sometimes it's childhood for you, it's probably, I, was, I, I think what's most interesting again is just, so A, you found out Paul, you know, he told you day 26 or whatever, that there had been a warning he didn't tell you about. You also found out, I think that it was your security guard detail who sold you right to the other yep. group effectively. Yep. So like a, a lot of betrayal in that, I, I could assume mm-hmm. That could cause one to be very bitter, but then again, that just eats at you from the inside. You know, I I think you've chosen to to use that energy in a different way. Yeah, I mean, I think I was really angry for a really long time, and people would ask me like, "How long? You know, how long did it take you to and um, to forgive your captors?" And I was like, "Actually, they're not the ones I was mad at." Yeah. <laughs> you know, Paul and my organization, they were the ones that I was mad at because they were neglectful in their duty of care. Um. For me, it's been um, turning my pain into advocacy. And and for me, that really looks like working with women and to help them feel empowered and to really work, walk in that powerful space of self-connection so that when something isn't right for them, they have the strength to say, yeah, I'm not doing this. Um, And I'm not going to be afraid of the ramifications because I have the right to say this, I'm uncomfortable. I don't feel safe. I don't want to do this. Um, without having to feel like you're going to lose your job. Yeah. I was going to say that has ramifications personally, professionally, Mm -hmm. family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Otherwise. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think that has actually just helped me move to a place of self-empowerment that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And, you know, like I, I have spent a lot of time sad because I think for a while, I thought maybe my purpose had like shriveled up and died out there in the desert. But what I've come to understand is like, that is always in us. You know, it doesn't ever go away. It may get dimmed out because of exhaustion or, um, you know, experiences or trauma, but it's never dead. 
And so we just need to figure out what it's going to take to nourish it and to grow it. And, um, you know, I've taken the time to do that. And so I feel more in alignment and more really powerful than I ever have. Yeah. I I asked you after you spoke and I really wasn't (laughs) sure what the answer was going to be that if you could, if you could go back with a wand and make this experience never happen, you know, would you? And and I think maybe thought for 10 or 20 seconds, but then you said, no, it's it's part of my story. It's part of my journey. I think that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think for a while I thought, oh, these experiences show you what you're made of. But I think now what I really believe is that they show you who you've always been. Yeah. Well, one of your projects is uh, we should talk about that. Explain, and that's helping people unpack grief and trauma. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I know as you've gotten involved in this, I am not diminishing being captured for ninety three days in the death. You've learned about people who years right in, imprisonment and stuff, and and families mm-hmm. that don't know how to get through this. So that's become a huge part of uh, the work you do, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, pretty much everything I do now, everything I have my hands in, is about um speaking your truth. So yes, I have a podcast with my co-host who's also named Jessica. Um, and we talk about all of the things. I mean, everything you can think of and um, that makes people feel a little uncomfortable. We talk about it. A lot of um, conversations with mental health professionals, relationships. Um, you know, we talk about the really, really cringy stuff about racism in schools and, and you know, the gifted programs and I don't know, your bodies and all of it. So, you know, our audience is mainly women. And then I have a publishing imprint, Soul Speak Press. So I publish women's and memoir manifestos. So those are uh, for women who want to tell their story. They've been through something. Now they know something and now they want to teach us something. And then I have my first anthology coming out in January of 2023 on the uh, anniversary of my rescue, January 25th. And I have compiled 22, I'm the the lead author, but there are 22 um, chapters of stories from women who have journeyed from the desert to the mountaintop and they've reclaimed their voice in some way. And so so lots of um, strong woman power in the spaces that I hang out in. And it's just, it's really fun. Did you get a chance to, because uh, I know it's super classified usually, did you get a chance to meet the the people who rescued you? I have. And it was amazing. Face to face or like behind a blinded wall or? <laughs> no, I did get to meet some of them face to face. That must have been incredible. Yeah, it was incredible. I think that that was really a turning point for me and my healing too. I, I think... I think up until then, I was really telling the story as like this damsel in distress. And then they came in to rescue me. And I don't know, I don't think I like needed their permission so much as like just to have a conversation with them and to be able to like, get some closure and say thank you. And then to talk to them about that whole day. And and I realized, you know what, there can be more than one hero in a story. And there's room for me to be that too without diminishing their heroism as well. Like we can all be heroes in it. Um, and so that's, that was really uplifting and elevating. And um, we have no idea what goes on behind the scenes yeah. of this country um, to keep us safe. And the families, I mean, I, I had the privilege of uh, working with the Navy SEAL foundation and meeting lots and lots of uh, families who are supported by that organization, whether they're 
service member is active duty or is fallen. It's incredible to meet these people and their families and all of the things that they do, all those sacrifices that they make. It really, really is true. And they're really, really special people. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, knowing, you know, they're risking their lives to save other people's lives. I mean, that must, but they don't be, even know yeah. like this girl yeah. who got herself in trouble in Somalia. Sense they've of never, duty. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. It's unfathomable really. So I usually ask people about sort of a personal and professional mistake that they've learned from. I'm curious, just in this whole process, I know you don't have a lot of regret, but other than not going in the first place, <laughs> which would be, I gotta let you off that easy. Is there something you would have done differently or you could have learned from, again, just throughout the whole process, uh, having been through it, if anyone finds themselves in a comparable situation in the future? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I wish I had listened to myself for sure. I wish yeah. I had trusted myself for sure. Um, I think it, from like a more tangible perspective, you know, I get asked a lot, like, well, how do you still feel about like going and in, in working in these environments? And um, I say, you know, go like the yeah. world is an incredible place, but like, make sure you get all the training you can possibly get. And um, make sure that you understand your organization, even if you're volunteering, what their procedures are and what their policies are around duty of care. You know, make sure everybody is going to take their their responsibility seriously in keeping you safe. You know, your own personal uh, safety is your it's your right. And if you don't feel safe, you have every right to say, "I don't feel safe." There's still a lot of pressure in in that world to go into these places um, because I think we think that we're safer than we are. And a lot of times it's just not true. And so you, you've got to be smart and you got to listen to your gut and do whatever it takes to experience it, but also be smart about it. So Jessica, where can people find more about you and your work? All right. So um, I feel like I'm all over the place. Um, my website is jessbuchanan.com and you can find out about the impossible odds story. You know, if you'd like me to come and speak at an event, um, also my imprint is on there. Um, I hang out, I'm on LinkedIn at Jessica and um, I think it's Jessica Buchanan you should check that. And, um, I really hang out on Instagram a lot. So Jessica C. Buchanan and Soul Speak Press and check my weekly podcast and out. We should talk about that new episode every Monday. So if you can't find you online, you're just not looking very hard. <laughs> <laughs> just Google Jessica Buchanan kidnapping and I'll come up. <laughs> it's probably pages. Uh, well, Jessica, thank you for joining us. Your story is uh, extraordinary. I'm grateful for you sharing it. I know it takes a lot of emotional energy, but I think there's a, a ton that everyone can pull from it. Thank you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It's been great. All right. For our listeners, you can learn more about Jessica and her work on the episode page at robertglazer.com. And if you enjoyed today's podcast or the Elevate podcast in general, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the show and hear from amazing guests like Jessica. Thanks again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. 
I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you wanna learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.